0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are returning once again to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, picking up where we left off. Uh, have we made it past verse 1 yet? Oh yeah. We're all the way into verse 2 now. Grace to you and Peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so tonight we're going to learn everything the Bible has to say about grace. We can do that in an hour, right? <laughs> Maybe? Alright, it's not a comprehensive study tonight but it is uh, It is going to be a, a, a thorough overview as it turns of uh, the grace of God that saves us, the grace of God we walk in, the grace of God we're going to die in, in the dying grace that uh, that God supplies. So Uh, Before we get started though, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Remember, God is spirit, He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Shall we pray? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Heavenly Father, we do come before your throne of grace tonight. Once again, completely unworthy in ourselves, but in Christ, Father, we thank you for the grace provision you've made for every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Father, we call upon your faithfulness once again tonight to open the eyes of our understanding, to bless us in the teaching of your word. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, before we get started, uh, we got a microphone ready to go. All right, we want to take a few minutes. We started this practice, custom, tradition, rut, whatever you want to call it, we started this uh, uh, ages ago now, I don't even remember when, but we're going to take the first ten minutes of a Wednesday night class to take questions and give answers and, and uh, maybe follow up on some things that weren't clear from Sunday or anything really, something a coworker was telling you or something you read about or something you heard on the radio and didn't sound right. Uh, just anything biblical at all from Genesis to Revelation, we'd be glad to, uh, to take your questions tonight. So, uh, microphones ready, who... Who would like to have our lead off question for tonight everyone's too humble to take the first question, so we'll skip that one all right let's go uh, we'll get she's not not humble okay we'll let bill have the first question there and then we'll bring it um yeah
1: uh-huh. my first question has to do with um
0: uh first corinthians
1: uh we see in uh first corinthians uh Verse, uh chapter One, verse five uh-huh. um, when it talks about uh the church at uh, Cornith, they really they had everything I mean all the spiritual gifts, the excellent teaching um, the the knowledge, um, but yet there still seems to be obviously that there was problems within uh the uh the body with the uh, uh division mm-hmm. uh, amongst who was with who and and who followed who and so forth uh, My question is um, can we say that that church was spiritually stunned, even though that they had everything? Mm-hmm. Um, were they still, um, because of their division, uh, not fully spiritual as far as walking with you know in the spirit and things like oh, that? Oh, totally.
0: Yeah, yeah. We can say that, and Paul can say that, and Paul did say that in uh, in chapter three. And uh, but you're right. It says you were enriched in uh, in everything. You were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. But remember, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And so when they're minus the love, then they get the schisms, they get the divisions, and all of that. It says, you are not lacking in any gift. They had all of them. All 11 of the permanent gifts, the the temporary gifts, Paul himself was an apostle. They had all the gifts. And yet, uh, they fell short. I think um, in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, I couldn't even talk to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. And so they, they didn't grow. It stunted their growth, and it hindered them from growing. And prolonged carnality will do that. In fact, prolonged carnality, I, I believe, even causes a regression where we, we get more immature in our faith than we used to be, reverting back to an adolescent or a childhood state by uh, virtue of that prolonged carnality. So, um, and so you've got to get nursed back to that with the milk and not the solid food and, and the aspects there. So, yeah, I would, I would point to 1 Corinthians 3, those first uh, few verses there to highlight that. All right, we'll cross the aisle here if you want to pass the microphone over. Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, the uh, chapters from 46 through 51 in Jeremiah that we're going through, uh-huh. um, the for the most part judgments or messages to the nations and right. to the tribes and different f- folks, um, since they were recorded by Barack or um were they mailed out, I mean, sent by
1: messenger to that particular group? And forgive me if you've covered this and I wasn't here,
0: but uh, mm-hmm. were they, uh, how did these specific messages, like to Egypt or any of these others, how did they get a message from God right. specifically since you know they don't have the communications that we do today? Mm-hmm. That's uh, true. Um, well, the short answer is we don't know. Uh, the longer answer is a lot of, educated guesswork based you know informed speculation Um, but we do know that in chapter 25 jeremiah took a tour i call it the jeremiah world tour because he went to all these gentile nations and he was commanded to to speak to those kings and make them drink from a cup and uh, in drinking from this cup of wine uh, and then the messages that he delivered to those to those gentile nations uh, it's conceivable that those uh, he, he conducted that ministry at that time and left the written text behind uh, as he departed, and so simply because um, it appears to us in the form today as chapters 46 to 51 doesn't mean that it was originally in that form. That uh, you know all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, but as the Holy Spirit inspires it, for example. Um, in later years, then additional collation can happen and and, and uh, different activity as far as what, what went into the canon of Scripture. So uh, all of the Psalms are put in the order they're in now. Um, the additional chapters were added to the end of Jeremiah, I believe, by Baruch. But even though Baruch took those chapters and put them at the end, I still accept that they were Jeremiah's authorship. I, I think the only chapter that was Baruch's authorship was chapter 52 that detailed the things after Jeremiah dies, uh, much as I think uh, the final chapter of Deuteronomy was, was written by Joshua after Moses died. So, um, but no, I, I suspect uh, Jonah went to Nineveh. I think, I think other prophets went to Gentile lands beyond what we know. And, uh, and specifically since Jeremiah was a prophet to the Gentiles and we know that he'd had that tour in chapter 25, um, it, it may be that the, the written messages were left there at that time. Thank you. Uh-huh. And if we can pass the microphone down. Oh, you don't have one? Oh, never mind. Well, then we can, okay, hand it back to Chris then and we can cross the aisle even. We can be bipartisan today, although I notice we're kind of slanted to the left tonight, but do we have, uh, any questions, uh? on this side, right, it's always from my perspective, because I'm the one talking, all right, well then, if there's nothing else, going once, going twice, then let's, thank you Chris, let's uh, take a look at uh, Philippians, talking about grace and peace, and uh, these are more than just throwaway um, terms, All right, seems to work. Um, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's a standard greeting uh, that Paul includes in all of his writings. Uh, Even uh, Peter and and John will adapt some of this in their writings, uh, depending on which epistle you're looking at. The uh, grace and peace are common benedictions in everything Paul wrote, plus, uh, as we saw, let me pull the slide back up here where we left off, and I don't want to. Get ahead of myself there. How about right here? Did that work? All right. I'm trying something new. I tried it. Worked kind of worked this morning in the slide presenter view in uh, PowerPoint. So all right. Um, but here we're talking about grace and peace. We're talking about Carus and Irene, and uh, this benediction. Grace and peace are common opening benedictions. And when you look at it, there's Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. You know, is there anything that Paul did not start with, with grace and peace? Um, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, I should put little stars by those, uh, Titus, Philemon, so that's it for Paul, okay? Um, with 1 and 2 Timothy, it's, uh, he adds mercy in there, it's grace, mercy, and peace are his benedictions to Timothy, and... Uh, why might that be um, you have to ask him <laughs> those why questions we don 't always get answers to, uh, but when he's writing to the young pastor, he does uh, add the element of mercy to uh, to his personal benediction uh, but Peter employs it in first uh, Peter and second Peter, and John employs it in second John and in uh, revelation in revelation one four you have the grace and peace benediction to start their uh, their correspondence at the end of the book with a closing benediction then it tends to be grace alone uh it's the most common closing and uh, you have the verses there at the end of romans at the end of first corinthians second corinthians galatians philippians you see the list on the on the board um so why is it that grace and peace opens a letter and grace by itself closes a letter? Again, it's a why question, and uh, the text doesn't tell us why, and so um, there's a lot of opinions and and who knows. All right, um, but this is what we're going to deal with, and now I'm going to expand upon these things because I think the the elements of grace, when they get lost, and we, we said this in Galatians, when you lose focus on grace, then You're a prisoner of war in the angelic conflict i mean you're just lost you're out there you're not functioning in uh, your priesthood you're not functioning in your ambassadorship you're not functioning in your soldier function everything is gone when you abandon grace because god's a god of grace and his protocol plan is a grace plan and we want to be clear on that so uh, i'm going to give you some some points here on grace and some points on, uh, on or a point on grace and a point on mercy uh, or peace, as we look at it, and then uh, take it from there, uh, uh, but keep in mind what we 're given tonight is going to have additional applications down the road because look what we see here: we have grace in verse two, but then we have thanksgiving in verse three. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, and the connection between grace and thanksgiving may not be as evident as uh, as it should be uh, unfortunately maybe maybe that's a flaw of the English language i don 't know. But uh, they, are in, they are inextricably linked in the, in the New Testament and, and in the Old Testament. The aspects of thankfulness are praise testimony for the grace of God. And, and you cannot separate grace from thanks. And uh, they, they come from the same Greek origin or uh, the same Hebrew root if you're dealing with the Old Testament. Uh, and if it helps, just dump the whole thanksgiving word anyway. Get rid of thanks and change it for gratitude. Because gratitude is... is our English cognate form for grace. There's grace and grateful and gratitude and gratis and other uh, other expressions that come via, via that uh, etymology as opposed to thanks or thanksgiving. So uh, maybe that'll be helpful as well. So we'll talk about more of these things. There'll be more grace unfolded when we talk about thanksgiving because real thanksgiving is a testimony of praise for the grace of God. And uh, we'll show that when we get to that point all right the grace of god is what saves us sustains us and ultimately brings us into his glory the grace of god is what saves us sustains us and ultimately brings us into his glory and there are scriptures for all of these and and they should be verses that everybody here already knows (laughs) okay there really should be no surprises tonight uh but um We'll see, and uh, beyond the verses you see there, Romans three twenty four, Ephesians two uh, five and eight, or you can say five seven and eight, um, Romans five two, First Corinthians fifteen ten, Second Corinthians nine eight and twelve nine. Uh, we should be very familiar with all of these all of these verses. First Peter one thirteen and five ten, Romans four four and sixteen, and Romans eleven six. All right, and that's just to start with, okay? And I'm probably going to upset somebody because you've had your favorite grace verse for 40 years now, and I did not put it on this slide, all right? So let me know what your favorite grace verse is and, and has been for all this time, and we'll add it to this slide, all right? Make sure that uh, that we get these verses down. So the grace of God is what saves us, Romans 3.24 and Ephesians 2. Let's start with Romans 3. And uh it's it's always good to remind yourself of this. It's always good to read this and reread this and, and never lose sight of the grace that saved you. We don't want to stop there, but I think sadly a lot of times uh, believers do stop there and uh, they were saved by grace and then they kind of abandon grace after that. They kind of plunge into a works mentality or they, they get into a legalistic type attitude. They find themselves uh, surrounded by legalists instead of grace people, and it, and it, it does rub off. Uh, that's the nature, I think, of leaven. As leaven spreads, and it rubs off. And if you're not surrounded by grace people, uh, it's it's hard to keep a grace attitude. So um, we want to go past salvation in our uh, in our grace thinking. But uh, Romans three, if you ever uh, get trained on how to use the Romans road or, or use these kind of methods for evangelism, then. These, again, they just jump out at you here. I'm going to back up to verse 21. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being written by the law and the prophets. And, and the book of Romans is not only presenting the doctrine, but it's presenting it uh, on a legal basis as um, evidence that is being submitted, uh, you know, data that's being submitted for evidence. And so when you have an expression like, has been manifested, we want to pay attention to that. There's terms like that scattered throughout the book of Romans. God Himself is testifying. God Himself is is making all things known. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. It is the ultimate uh, offer of salvation available to anybody, whosoever will whosoever will, whosoever believeth in him shall uh, not perish, but receive everlasting life. And we understand this. If you're going to preach a whosoever gospel, then it's got to be on a grace basis. Grace is the only mechanism that can truly be offered to whosoever when it comes right down to it. Um, and so this is what it is. It's not uh, It's not works. It's not the law. It's not any merit of our own. And uh, it has to be on the, on the basis of, of grace through faith. So, for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all, and in that for, that explanation of verse 23, it's building upon the, the premise of verse 22. For all have sinned, or all sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. And this issue here is the total depravity, is the lost estate in Adam, it's the theological basis on, on which God is able to make provision. He's able to offer a second Adam, or what we call the last Adam. He's able to offer a new federal headship that takes us out of our lost estate in Adam. And it's not the sins, plural, we have done. It is the sin, the sin of the world. It is Adam's original sin that condemned him and and all of Adamic humanity. And that's that's the nature of the condemnation. God very graciously, he said, on the day you eat of it dying, you will die. God very graciously condemned all of Adamic humanity. That's why her eyes were open, his eyes were open. It was a, it was a positional, judicial uh, function of God's judgment to place all of Adamic humanity under that, that sentence of death. The wages of sin is death. See, For all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, being justified. So the, all sinned is why then there is an all without distinction offer that can be made. Faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. There are no sinners that are worse than other sinners. Say, well, you're extra bad, so you need extra grace to get you saved. Me, I'm not quite that bad, so I didn't. I just needed a little bit of, you know, slightly less grace to get me saved. See, I'm being silly, of course, um, as far as that goes. So, no, we're all, without distinction, every one of us is Adamic, and in Adam all die, but in Christ all are made alive. And this is how uh, the the theology on this unfolds. So uh, being justified as a gift. What's a gift? It's a grace thing, okay? It is something that's been given by the grace, uh, by his grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So when you think grace, if you have a synonym for grace in your mind that means free, change your synonym, all right? Because there is a cost, the difference being, we didn't pay that cost. Christ paid that cost. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. If you like that acronym, I do. I like that acronym. I learned that when I was five, I think. God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. Okay? And that's what it is. He paid the price and I get to benefit. And so uh, we see this here. We are. Grace is what saves us being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly. See that? Again, it's like what we were talking earlier about uh, the righteousness of God being manifested and being witnessed. This is evidence being submitted uh, in a court. This is uh, the righteousness of God, the justice of God, all of His wisdom, all of His love, all of His grace, all of His fairness is on eternal display and satan can't he's got doesn't have a leg to stand on if he wants to say that god's not righteous the whole point for humanity is to demonstrate through the lower creation to the higher creation the uh, the evil of, of satan's rebellion and it's on display that's what it's about so god displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith The Father was satisfied, the Son's blood was shed, the spiritual death of Christ on the cross. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. And so every Old Testament believer who got saved looking forward to a redemption that would come someday that faith is now being validated, being justified, and God is displaying His righteousness for putting those Old Testament saints into paradise, or Abraham's bosom, and sending the unregenerate to torments on the other side of the, of the great gulf. And so now God's righteousness is on display, His justice is on display. By the way, it, it proves that the death is necessary, otherwise God's the hypocrite. And trying to save somebody or say, well, it's okay, I'm a God of love. You can come to heaven anyway without the the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross is is an insult to God's character. For the demonstration, I say, in verse 26, (laughs) he keeps coming back to this, okay? It's not your crazy pastor making this point of emphasis. It's Paul is saying, this is significant. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. See, we in the church age get to preach the gospel as a completed act, as an it is finished, telesti testimony. Demonstration of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And there's so much doctrine wrapped up into that. I just want to kind of throw it out there and let you chew on it tonight and think about it. But if God himself is not just, and he cannot justify. See? So he has to be just, and of course he is. But to display that, to display that to us, and to display that to the angels, and to display that to himself, where all of the, the, the testimony is, is there, right? Uh, you can think of it as we hold these truths to be self-evident, <laughs> okay? And here's God displaying these things so that Uh, Even the accuser and all of his satanic insanity um, cannot deny the reality for what it is. Ultimately, at the great white throne, every knee will bend, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, okay? Because the demonstration is that He is just and He is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So anyway, uh, chew on that as you will and consider Uh, Some of those concepts, I believe God is one who puts things on display. The church is on display to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. There are a lot of things on display. I believe in the fullness of time uh, for the thousand generations. After the thousand years, there's going to be a lot on display. That God himself is going to display death defeated. The last enemy that will be defeated is death. And I believe God doesn't just say so. I believe God shows it shows it for a thousand generations of those that don't, don't die, don't sin, don't rebel, but they love and serve Jesus Christ and the new heavens and new earth. Alright, so that's uh, the grace of God that saves us. Over to Ephesians, Ephesians 2. And of course immediately you want to jump to 8 and 9 because everybody when they think of Ephesians 2, the only verses in Ephesians 2 are 8 and 9. Um, kind of silly how they get those numbers then. But Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, let's back up, though. Let's start in verse 5, or maybe even earlier. Um, we got the walk of the unbeliever, okay? And this is a very active uh, walk. It's a very active existence. Um, it's, it's a text that, that folks love to use if they're, if they're going to prove their theology, and, and interestingly enough, they, they, they fall short in that. But uh, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and this is why uh, in the, the Calvinist line of thinking, God has to regenerate you first so that then you can believe. And then they front load that. They front load the regeneration because they think that it's in that then that is provided the capacity for, for faith or, or believing. But it misses the point, all right? And then when I've gone around around in circles with, with different folks talking about this, they, um, they keep coming back to, no, you were dead, you were dead. Dead people can't do anything. How can a dead person believe? Because if you're dead, you just don't do anything. And that's not a biblical definition of death. Biblical definition of death is separation. And you may still do an awful lot of things in your separated existence. And that's, uh, that's very clear. So you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. There it is. Okay? I call that dead man walking, right? Because they're dead, but they're walking. They're doing a lot in their dead. They're not inactive. See, dead is not inactive. Dead is separated. When your soul is separated from your body, then your body is dead. Death is a separation. When you're carnal, that's a death. It's called operational death. You're separated. Your sins have created a barrier between you and, and the Holy God. So death is a separation. Spiritual death is a separation. It's not inactivity. You can be very active. Okay. There's a ton of active people that are going to stand at that great white throne and say, Lord, Lord. We did this, we did this, we did this. they got a long list of stuff they did. And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. So don't don't think of death, spiritual death, as inactivity. They can be the busiest, uh, you know, unbelievers you're looking at. So, um, in which you formally walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's the lost estate in Adam and uh they've they're following after the course of Satan, we get that among them we too all formerly lived and that's an interesting use of lived because that's lived applied to dead people, okay, so if you have dead man walking now you've got dead man living, and uh, this is the i don't know what is that the living dead is it, something um yeah, so there it is. We all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging, so now we're we're walking, living, and indulging, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And I think it's interesting that there's pleasures, there's lusts, desires that are both bodily lusts and mental lusts. Lusts of the flesh, lusts of the mind. Um, it is interesting. All right as we have both, uh, of course, an outer man and an inner man. We have a physical nature and a mental nature. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, notice, salvation happened when we were dead. He didn't make us alive so he could save us. He saved us while we were dead. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. And you see what verse 5 does. I put verse 5 up there with verse 8. Verse 5 puts those two expressions in parallel, in tandem. God made you alive. By grace you have been saved. It's the same thing said two different ways. By grace you were made alive. By grace you have been saved. And so the idea that being made alive can precede getting saved is nonsensical because it's the same thing. You are saved because you have been made alive. That, that living human spirit is your salvation. That is your your again your connection to God. That severing has been restored. You've been reconciled to God, and so you are alive together with Christ. You are saved. Both halves of verse five are saying the same thing. There. All right. Not only saved us, but then in the and tr- that's true in in any dispensation, by the way. That's true from Adam and Eve getting clothed with the animal skins, that's true for all Old Testament saints, that's true in the tribulation, true in the millennium. Anytime somebody gets saved, their their spirit, their human spirit is being made alive, okay? For us in the church age, there's even more. For us in the church age, because we are made alive together in Christ, then we are raised up with Him, seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's unique to the church age. So that in the ages to come, he might show. Look at that. There's a demonstration. When's the demonstration? In the ages to come. Ages plural. So it's not the church age. Not the tribulation, because we're absent for the tribulation. So find me plural ages after the tribulation. All right? That he might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I believe that's then the millennium and the fullness of time. That's the thousand years and after the thousand years. So that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace. For, again, what's the for about? It's the explanation and the connection with everything that preceded it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not faith, not, it's the whole construction, that whole operation, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no man may boast. The grace of God is what saves us, okay? And I didn't stop there. The grace of God sustains us. Romans 5.2, let's go back to Romans again. The grace of God saved us and the grace of God sustains us. You know, when you think of it, saving grace is just the introduction. (laughs) And it can't be the last time you ever encounter grace. I hope not. What a pathetic Christian life would that be? See, what would the difference be between us and the unbeliever then if we don't have any grace here in time? Are you kidding me? We get grace day after day after day. It's an amazing thing to be walking in grace. How sad would it be to, to be saved by grace and then not see any grace again until you get to heaven? no we get grace all the time so romans 5 we we have justification in chapters 3 and 4 and then we get our sanctification now um, anyway we got a development here so it says in verse 5 uh, ch- chapter 5 verse 1 therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ and we're going to talk about that cuz peace is our next topic after grace but then notice, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And so our positional truth in Christ is a position, it's an estate. And getting saved is just the introduction. And now that introductions have been made, where are we? <laughs> We're in Christ. We stand in this marvelous sphere called grace our introduction by faith, into this grace in which we stand. That's not the grace that saved us, that's the grace we stand in. That's the grace that sustains us, that's the the, the grace we we live in day by day, moment by moment. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. It provides the perspective we need for every test we face, for every conflict, for every difficulty. We can exult in hope in the glory of God. And everything else that then follows. You see the outworking of this? Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. And so it gets very practical very quickly, doesn't it? It's the the daily sustaining of of grace as we stand in this this estate or in this sphere. And so uh, there it is. Grace uh, saves us. Grace sustains us. I think about Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 15 10. I've been chewing on this verse a lot, 1 Corinthians 15 10. And uh, back up a little bit. In fact, this this verse has been convicting for me Um, all year, actually. All right. Verse 9 says, this is the appearances that he makes, right? And the appearances, the post-resurrection appearances, this is where he's commissioning the apostles. So he appeared to uh, first to uh, Peter, right? He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. And, and then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So there has not been an apostolic commission since the Apostle Paul's commission on the Damascus Road. We can prove that biblically. It says so right there. For I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. You know What he did in his unbelief, what he did in, in, his, uh, in his arrogance, his pharisaical arrogance as an Old Testament believer um, just hideous. And the thought that God got a hold of him and brought him into the church and uh, commissioned him as an apostle is just extraordinary. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this is the grace that sustains us. This is the living grace that we have day by day, moment by moment. And it's everything that we are, it's everything that we do. If we try to boast in what we do, it's just as stupid as trying to boast in saving ourselves, because we didn't save ourselves. Ephesians 2 says, Lest any man should boast, we can't boast. If we're going to boast, we've got to boast in the Lord. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that, that requires grace. Otherwise, um, what are you boasting about? <laughs> okay? If, you know, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Uh, if you're oriented to grace, then all the boasting in the world has got to be in the Lord. You can't boast in yourself. Now, does that mean you're lazy? No, because finish the verse. Grace is not a motivation to laziness and yet I've been told that. Other people have said that. The reason why legalism thrives is because legalism can be a guilt manipulation thing that gets people to work harder. And I've had people tell me this. Jim Myers has had people tell him this. He's had pastors tell him this. That, well, if I preach grace, I'd never get anybody to serve around here. Well, try it sometime, pal. Let me tell you something. Preach grace, you get all kinds of people serving, and, for, and serving for the right reasons. That's, that's even better. So, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain or empty, but I labored even more than all of them. See, if Paul would have been a a decent Texan, he would have said, all y'all, right? And he labored more than all of them, put together. Yet not I, but the grace of God in me or with me. See, grace sustains us. And it's by the grace of God we are what we are, and it's by the grace of God we do what we do. And so we, we from our perspective then, we're just going to keep our eyes on Him, we're just going to keep working hard. And the more that grace orients us, the more we want to work harder. See, and it's like that woman wiping his feet with her tears, right? With her hair. Because she had been forgiven much, she loved more. I think it's the same concept. It doesn't use grace in that passage, but I think it's the same concept. Her love, Paul's grace, I think it's the same application. We we identify what we've received and how unworthy we are. And so it motivates us then in response to work all the more. So, I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. See? And so that's that's a verse I claim. That's a verse I, I, uh, I want on my tombstone someday, right? Rapture pending, I won't have a tombstone. But the uh, the I want to say it's by grace that I am what I am, that I do what I do, and, and I want to say I worked harder, okay? Uh, I don't want to stand at the judgment seat of Christ and hear, you wicked, lazy slave. I don't want to hear that. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So um, there's the grace of God there. All right second corinthians second corinthians nine eight and I admit this is uh this year has been uh diminished we're a little bit uh i'm getting some rest and we've decreased our schedule and we're doing prayer and praise on Sunday night, and I'm only teaching four times a week instead of six times a week and that bugs me. I freely confess that, but i'm leaving that with the Lord as well all right, and uh whatever he wants to do he's free to uh increase he's free to decrease he's free to uh do whatever else he wants to do all right second corinthians 9 8 and this is the chapter that talks about grace giving of course um but don't limit this chapter to money okay just because that's the illustration the principle applies much broader than than that uh you see in verse 6 he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully so that comes to our attitude, the attitude that shapes our thinking in what we think and what we do. And uh, the attitude of sparingly reaps the, the harvest, therefore. And the attitude of abundance reaps the harvest. Okay? Comes down to that attitude. Each one must do, see, more than the money you give. It's, it's, the, it's, it's the pastoring, the deaconing, the teaching, the serving, the, uh, whatever your gift is in calling and ministry, do it abundantly do it bountifully do it just laughing as abraham laughed amazing that god's going to do such a thing and each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart not grudgingly or under compulsion see it's the attitude that shapes the thinking that then accomplishes the actions for god loves the cheerful giver see grace cannot be uh, compelled love cannot be compelled it's it's an oxymoron. It's like a a square circle or a married bachelor or, or, you know, compelled grace is not grace. God loves the cheerful giver. When when Jesus went to the cross, He chose to do so. He wanted to obey the Father. It's clear on, uh, on that. We want to be clear on these on these things now in this application then verse eight says what does verse eight say and god is able to make all grace abound to you so the sky is the limit what do you want to do what's your attitude is it a is it a a a sparingly attitude are you trying to scrape by in the christian way of life with the bare minimum you know what are the minimum system requirements? you know no what is the what is the abundance what's the what's the maximum what's the sky's the limit? what do I want to do? well, because whatever in your heart, in your desire, in your grace appreciation, God is able to make all grace abound, so don't think that God's going to limit your fruitfulness based upon what you can afford or what you think you can accomplish in your ability or how smart you think you are or any other kind of thing. We have self-imposed limitations that are not God limitations. God is able to make all grace abound to you. He's able, but we don't often test that ability, do we? To make some grace, a lot of grace, all grace. How much much can we access? All of it, (laughs) okay? Because that's how he designed it. That's what grace is and you say, well, I don't think I've deserved that much. What, are you Catholic? <laughs> okay. The only ones I know that pervert grace into a kind of a works thing are the Catholics. They think that you've got to work to earn the grace of Mary or the grace of Jesus or the grace of something, and it's, it's not works. All right. God is able to make all grace about you so that always having all sufficiency in everything. How many absolute terms do we have here, right? We saw a lot of absolute terms this morning in Proverbs 12. is a neat thing. But look at this. Here's a lot of absolute terms. So, uh, God is able to make all grace. That's, a, that's an absolute term. Abound to you. So that always, there's an absolute term. Having all sufficiency, there's an absolute term. In everything, there's an absolute term. It's our fourth one now. You may have an abundance for every good deed. There's another absolute term. There's five of them there. I mean, that makes a point, doesn't it? It drives it home again and again and again. That's what grace is about, for every good deed. I think if you do something apart from grace, it's not a good deed. It's human effort. It's wood, hand, stubble. You're going to see it burned up at the judgment seat of Christ. But if you're operating by grace through faith, it's every good deed. And you get to see the gold, silver, and precious stones piled higher and higher. And I love that. I want to have a whole chain of angels up there with wheelbarrows just to to haul away all the gold, silver, and precious stones because that's how much I want to throw at my Savior's feet. I don't want to just have a couple of, you know, nickels here and there and some loose change and kind of toss it at Jesus. How insulting is that? He's worth so much more. So it's grace, and it's grace that sustains us. Uh, Over to chapter 12. Still in 2 Corinthians, but chapter 12. Um, in verse 9. Of course, this is the thorn in the flesh episode. He was caught up to the third heaven, and we we had some fun with this, and we've got to track the the context on this because he said it was 14 years ago, and uh, we recognize where this fell in the life of Paul ministry. It was before Antioch. It was in that era when he was serving in Tarsus before Barnabas went and fetched him, and he spent a year together in Antioch. Um. anyway he's caught up to heaven into paradise he heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak all right so all these hucksters that are selling books these days there seem to be a rash of them about things they saw in heaven or going to heaven or this and that and coming back and writing books and selling movie rights and all this other stuff i'm not i don't believe any of them are real okay because of this passage paul wasn't allowed to, to sensationalize it. A man is not permitted to speak. In fact, he was given a thorn in the flesh to humble him, to keep him from exalting himself, to keep him from selling movie rights and getting rich. (laughs) Okay? all these people writing their books, I want to say, well, where's your thorn in the flesh? To keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, an angelos of Satan. A fallen angel was assigned to him for personal tormenting, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Remember Lazarus and the rich man? He went to torments. Paul didn't have to go to torments. He had it everywhere he went, this, this fallen angel assigned to, uh, to do this. And concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness." And this is the uh, greatest illustration I can think of for the grace that sustains us no matter what. Whatever I'm being tested with, it's not a, a fallen angel that's assigned to torment me. And even if it was, God's grace is sufficient. Quit asking to take away problems. Problems is where God glorifies Himself even more. Problems is where grace shines forth. Problems is where I really learn what the power of God can do. If I don't have these problems, then I don't get to see God's power at work. So most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And this is why we get to learn this contentment. We get to learn the secret of this contentment. And in Philippians, we're going to learn this. We're going to learn the the abundance and and the poverty. And we're going to learn that abundance and poverty can have financial applications. It can have health applications. It can have a lot of applications whereby we see a spectrum. And we better learn uh, on both ends, on extreme wealth or extreme poverty, uh, in in money, in health, and everything else. Okay? And we learn to be content as He supplies and to stick with the grace. All right. Ultimately, grace is what brings us into His glory. And I think that there is an eternal perspective on this as well. There's a whole doctrine connected with dying grace, but the grace that, uh, that, that brings us through the veil into glory, into eternity, that grace that, where we transition from mortality to immortality, there's a grace when we get there as well and that's surpassing. It's beyond anything we can imagine here in time. And, and I thought I was going to highlight this as we were in Ephesians 2, not that long ago do you remember verse seven in the midst of this it talks about in him let me back up here ephesians 2 7 and uh, so that in the ages to come this is grace that continues to pour forth beyond the church age beyond our mortal existence because in the ages to come guess what we're not mortal anymore we're immortal. We're glorified. We we are um, spectacularly conformed to His glorious body, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace. This is why I think sometimes the I know Colonel Theme taught grace and super grace and ultra super grace and different categories of things there, but ultimately speaking, we 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 only get the, the deposit, the down payment here in time. It's ultimately in the ages to come that there are dimensions of things we're not even suited now to to fully apprehend. But it's in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I think the um, ultimate, um, sometimes the judgment seat of Christ is taught as a works thing and a consequences, and well, that's what you've earned and deserved because you were in fellowship. So it's good, gold, silver, and precious stones. It's not carnality, so it's not wood, hand, stubble, and 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 whatnot. And and all of that is true, but it also I think we have to we have to understand that in the in a context of grace, because let's say there was gold, silver, and precious stones. Let's say you did stay in fellowship. You think you did that in human effort? There was grace in that work as well. And there was even more grace. So it's all grace. That's why we throw it at his feet. We don't claim that we earned it. Anyway, in the ages to come. How about 1 Peter 1.13? 1, you know anybody that's taught 1 Peter? <laughs> all right. 1 Peter, I'm teasing. Of course, Lewis has spent a lot of hours in 1 Peter. I don't think he even got out of chapter 1. So let's uh, look at chapter 1 and verse 13 notice, prepare your minds for action. Isn't that great? I love that. See, Christianity requires thought. Let my people think. I think it's it's just, you know, that's why our churches, our style of churches are so small. And uh, because you got to think, it takes work. You can't just sit there and be entertained and feel good about whatever. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on what? On the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Grace is what saved us. Grace is what sustains us. And grace ultimately is going to be revealed in a way beyond anything we could ask or think at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're going to be so saturated with grace, It's going to, you know, we're going to think, wow, did we even know what grace even was? <laughs> okay, at the grace to be brought to you, the revelation of Jesus Christ—that's what it's about. We're looking forward. See, the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Um, anyway, over to chapter five. I love chapter five. There's so much in here that addresses where we are in the church age, the um, operating in a flock. Operating, and it starts off exhorting the elders um, to, uh, as a fellow elder to shepherd the flock of God among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion. You see that? Just like with giving. you got to do it because you want to. You've got to do it on a volitional basis. Voluntarily, according to the will of God. Not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. That is such an important verse. Sheep are allotted. You think about when Joshua walked through and gave the land grant, and gave the allotments, and told Benjamin, "Here you go," and Issachar, "Here you go," and Zebulun, "Here you go." Okay, the flock is an allotment. And uh, there's the Church Universal, of course, the Bride of Christ, but and under the Great Shepherd or the Chief Shepherd is called here, the Chief Shepherd. But then there's the particular local churches. There's the specific. Lampstands, whereby individual sheep are allotted to particular shepherds. And if they're faithful, they'll be rewarded. So, you, nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge. That's the only criteria right there in my book. That's it. People go church shopping and they're looking for whatever. I don't know. They're looking for, you know, a singles program or they're looking for music or they're looking for is there daycare for my kids or is there a. I mean, they got a long laundry list of stuff, right? There's one criteria. To whom have you been allotted? Ask yourself that. Ask Jesus that. Ask, to whom have you allotted me? Because that's my assignment. And then it says, proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory so those first four verses are all keyed into the elders there and then it says you younger men likewise i love the likewises okay and uh all the doctrine of verses one through four now comes to the younger men be subject to your elders and all of you likewise clothe yourselves with humility toward one another for god is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble and so we have a passage here that deals with grace So therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. So there's grace in time, but there's grace in eternity. And so uh, we see it here. And there's conflict along the way, of course. There's the adversary prowling. Um, Resist him. Then verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, okay, 80 years, 90 years, 100 years, whatever, it's just a little while the God of all grace. Remember how much grace? A little bit of grace, a lot of grace? All grace. God is able to make all grace abound to you. Why? Because He's the God of all grace. Who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, He will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And what a day that's going to be, okay? That's why to live is Christ, but to die is gain. So the grace of God, the God of all grace, is the one that brings us into His glory, and uh, the process here—what a what a delight! Finally, grace rejects any works or merit. I don't know how to be more blunt than Paul, and he was pretty blunt in this. But Romans four four, Romans four sixteen, Romans eleven six, again and again and again, if it's works, it's not grace. If it's works, it's not grace. So quit thinking in terms of what you've earned and deserved. Okay? I know, I've deserved the lake of fire. So that conversation's over. Let's get past what we've earned and deserved. Let's, uh, let's celebrate the God of grace. Romans 4.4, 4, To the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor. In other words, it's not grace. But what is due? If you work for something, then your paycheck is not a grace check, it's a paycheck. Okay? You have a claim. If you have done the labor, you're in a, a contractual agreement with an employer, whatever the case may be, and uh, whatever it is, a dollar an hour, a thousand dollars an hour, whatever, it's irrelevant because it's, it's a contract, it it's works. And you've put in the work. You've worked your eight hours or you've worked your one hour. Okay, Remember when Jesus taught that parable? And those guys worked a single hour, they got to work at 5 o'clock, a bunch of slugs sitting around doing nothing and then he finds them there at 5 o'clock and says, alright, come and work. They work one hour and he chooses to pay them the same thing that everybody else was getting paid for the, for the full day work. And uh, remember the early guys got their nose bent out of shape, didn't they? Because they had approached on a works basis on a, on a what we earn and deserve basis. Those last guys, it was just all grace. It was just, hey, whatever. Whatever is right. And he was gracious towards them. So if you work for it, if your wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due, right? You want to talk about wages? The wages of sin is death. Let's let's not talk about wages. Let's talk about grace. But to the one who does not work, notice, but believes, now, believing is an activity, but it's not a work. And it, it doesn't merit anything. It is non-meritorious. It is an activity because it's something you must do. And if you don't do it, then you don't, you're not saved. It's, you know, so you have to do it. But the doing of it is, does not earn anything. It is not a meritorious action. It is a non-meritorious action. So the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly his faith is credited, reckoned, counted, considered as righteousness. And that's what it's about. Faith is the only mechanism that can be the grace mechanism that accepts what God is freely offering. Otherwise, apart from faith, apart from trusting him for what he promised, it's works. And you think you have a claim on him. (laughs) you don't you just think you do and that's why uh, um, it's, it's due okay if you've worked then it's due something that's due you have a legitimate claim you have a hold on them hey I worked I put in my labor now you owe me I have a legitimate claim on what is due and you are in my debt until you pay me that's not grace Uh, Same chapter, look down at verse 16. For this reason it is by faith. For this reason, it's the only mechanism that is compatible with a grace operation. In order that it may be in accordance with grace. So that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. So that it can be a whosoever offer. Not only to those who are of the law, but to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. If it's not faith, then it's works. And if it's works, it's not grace. By definition, it cannot be any other way. Finally then, Romans 11.6. What happens when you pervert grace? It's no longer grace. You can call it grace, but it's not grace. That's why sometimes I even... And I get it. I like free grace. It's a good term. I've used it. I'm a part of the free grace movement, part of the free grace, grace camp, whatever um but in some respects it's 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 redundant of course it's free grace there's no other kind okay if it's not free it's not grace but okay i didn't coin the term so i'll i'll go with it but anyway in the same way then there has come to be at the present time a remnant, according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. When you inject works, even one percent—you know—you can't break it down. Ninety-nine percent, one percent doesn't matter. If it's one percent gra- uh, works, grace is no longer grace. We can't claim any credit ourselves for anything we've done. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So grace rejects any works or merit. We'll come back on Sunday and talk about peace. And it's a shorter study than the grace study. But the finished work of Christ gives us peace with God. We saw that already in Romans 5. And this peace then is also in a state. It's also a sphere. It's also an attitude. And if we lose track of the peace perspective, it's like losing track of a grace perspective. You end up fighting with other people. We're supposed to have peace with one another. We have peace with God. We should have peace in every circumstance and detail of life. And it's a peace that only Christ can give. It stands opposed to the peace this world offers. This world offers a phony counterfeit. It calls peace, but it's not a peace. And we'll talk about that as well from John 14, 27. All right, Father, thank You for Your truth. Thank You for this time together tonight. We pray for Your hand of blessing upon this study as it's gone forth. Uh, it doesn't stop just because the the uh, the words stop. True, um, sure the human being stops speaking, but your word is alive and powerful and it has gone forth. It will not return void. I pray that it would be received with humility, that it would be implanted, that it would dwell richly, that it would continue to speak and continue to work and continue to uh, have effects in uh, in the hours and days and months and years ahead, Father. Make use of of this word tonight in powerful ways for your glory, for your good pleasure. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Walk in the light as he's